0: You a better
1: way. Well, hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, May the 19th, 2022. And since it's Thursday, it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. Here's what i got on deck for you today. In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, Dr. Paul talks about claiming liberty uh, versus letting it be called some sort of a privilege by your vaulted government officials who seem to think that it is their, their place in the world to tell you what you can and you cannot do. It, it, liberty is something to be claimed, Dr. Paul, and I agree on that. Dan McAdams over there will talk about... The monetary giveaway to the Ukraine and how it's without precedent. I don't care where you come down on this issue. And I put out some interesting information you might want to check out today on social media about it. But what Dan points out is the irony of an open blank check to a country with no checks on it. Like check as in a check you write and checks as a checks and balances. That This is unprecedented. That Even at the height of the Cold War, we would have never done such a thing. And now to even suggest that we should like have any idea where our money goes is uh, tantamount to treason in the mind of the elites. It's almost like they just want war at all costs. Chris Rossini talks about how the Federal Reserve System has to eventually fall apart because it's really a system that's designed to be something from nothing. I completely agree. Jessica Mills will help us change directions on topics because we're going to talk about hammock camping. I had a little addition to that one, not much. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about kidney stones and the conventional medical advice about them and how, well, stupid it really is. Doc Bones will talk to us about AFib and tell us what we need to know about AFib. It's one of those things you hear about on TV a lot, but most people really don't know what it is. And what happens when you're someone that deals with AFib and you worry about a grid-down situation. Tim the Toolman Cook has a three question grab bag on backup power. Did a fantastic job on it, if I do say so. Michael the Bee Whisperer Jordan will talk about dealing with a bee invasion inside your home. I do not mean. You go in your house and there's bees everywhere inside your house. I mean, like you see bees coming and going and they're living in the wall of your home. Can you do this yourself? You probably shouldn't. Mike will tell you why. And I'll tell you about something that happened to my bee mentor uh, doing a removal and why I really don't think you should do it yourself. And then we have a financial questions lightning round from the man himself, John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast. And I've got some big announcements. Two really great announcements. One I think is interesting, and you might like it, and it might be helpful to you. The other one that I think is a huge announcement. I just found out today myself. It involves me and somebody else that you're going to hear from today on the show. But I'm not going to tell you who it is. If you follow me on social, you might already know what's fixing to happen Tuesday next week. But I'll tell you when I get to my segment. And I'll give you some thoughts on my quote of the day. My quote of the day is from Stephen Hawking. He said, intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. I'm going to tell you why your intelligence is going to be the main thing that you're going to need to survive the next few years, and not just survive it, but as we teach here, to thrive in it even when times are tough. And let's get that kicked off right away. Here we go. Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, and Chris Rossini in that order with the Liberty Report Highlights of the Week.
2: People know what's going on. They know there's something wrong. But I don't think it's that part, that complicated. I think if we restore the principles of liberty, liberty is an individual item. It is not dealt with by passing out to groups. You don't have this group of rights and this group of rights. That's nonsense. Individuals have individual rights, and they have a right to their life and their liberty, and uh, they have one rule to follow, so there is no chaos. They're responsible for everything that they do. They can't hurt or steal from people. Today, we live with lying by government and stealing by government, defrauding the government with the monetary system. So the government's setting a terrible example. So it's up to the people to say to their representatives and to the congressman that you ought to live within the moral laws that you pretend that we have to live under and you pester us with with a lot of nonsense. But So I am an optimist in the long run that the... It's very complicated. It's easy to understand, and the answer is not complex because it's the wonderful answer of liberty for the individual, which is the most likely thing that will promote peace and prosperity. Eleven Republican senators vote against
0: $40 billion in security assurance assistance for Ukraine. Of course, as you point out to Paul, Dr. Paul, that is not going to Ukraine. That's going to Lockheed and Raytheon. Um, but nevertheless, eleven. Members of the Senate, including Senator Paul, which is good, Senator Lee, a few other good ones, had the courage to stand up. First of all, $40 billion, Senator Paul did a very good job at putting our our aid to Ukraine in perspective, almost as big as the State Department budget, bigger than Homeland Security, more than we spent in a whole year in Afghanistan, our first year. This is what kind of money we're talking about. Yeah, listen to these ungrateful people. This is a member of Ukrainian parliament who's furious with Senator Paul for delaying their money. He said, when you tell your three-week-old baby that her mom's work for the last week, that we had to spend a part to help the country, was blocked by one single man in the U.S. Senate. These political games and the delay cost hundreds of lives of Ukrainian soldiers. So a member of the United States Senate who said, can we please just keep track of this money to make sure it's not wasted, That person is demonized and vilified and literally accused of killing hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers simply for doing his constitutional duty and looking out for the constituents and looking out for the American taxpayer. NATO assures Ukraine open-ended military support against Russia. And I'm wondering about this, and I guess there might have been some circumstances in history, but I wonder when has the U.S., when has NATO ever done this? When have we said, we will give you unconditional, open-ended, the sky's the limit, just name the price, and we will support you? I can't even imagine, now NATO's purpose was to deter a Soviet invasion of Western Europe. I can't even imagine during the height of the Cold War that we would say,
3: absolutely anything and everything you want, we will give you. Naturally, we want things, we want the most that we can get with the least amount of effort uh that's why free is so popular whenever you see the word free it works you know because it's when you get something for free it's time and work that you don't have to perform in order to obtain something that you want so it's rational you know our life is short and our time is scarce so to want something for nothing is it's rational you know uh, but that has to be relegated to the voluntary aspect of society. If somebody wants to give you something for free, okay. Uh, Something for nothing cannot be an entire system, and that is what we have, and that is what was created with the Federal Reserve, something for nothing. You know, because people must produce things. You have to have the baker makes the bread, the uh, computer maker, the phones, uh, the medical services, whatever. It, It has to be produced. Even money has to be produced, which is why gold has been money for 5,000 years. It has to be worked for, labored for. It's very hard to get gold out of the ground, you know, and that's why there's little to no inflation of gold. But when the Fed is able to create digits out of thin air, out of nothing, they're literally creating nothing. It's an electronic digit. You can't put it in your hands. And then that can be traded for something that was produced, worked for. So it's like a loophole that they figured out that they could just create this money for nothing and go get all of these real things that people worked for. Uh, you know, and it's been around long enough to where a lot of people have noticed this system and they want in on it. That's why you see 40 billion here, 1 trillion here, 6 trillion here. Everybody wants this money out of nothing so that they could go and buy and live uh, the lives that they uh, dreamed of this is totally unsustainable you can see that it is not working it is falling apart and we have to go back to this person produces this person produces and exchange not this let's just create fictional digits and go live it up you can't have this institution that creates a society of something for nothing
1: well none of these guys need me to speak on their behalf or add to anything they have to say but i'm just going to Real quick, dink on each one a bit, uh, some add-ons, a little bit of dogpiling on top. Uh, I completely agree, of course, with Dr. Paul. Right is not a privilege, and we should never let government even get away with the contention that it might possibly be. And I I personally believe if you have a right that it's up to you to defend it and to assert it and to act on it, Uh, you, 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 you can't be given sovereignty. You can only claim it. Dan McAdams, on his thoughts about the money being given away to Ukraine, I've I've railed against this myself, but I actually never thought about the way he put it there, and I think we, we should think about that. If we get to the point where you're writing somebody a check for billions of dollars and you can't even say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? And what kind of visibility do we have in this without some appeal to emotion fallacy coming back from somebody throwing a tantrum? Maybe you shouldn't be giving them any money at all. I'm just saying. I don't care how you feel about the issue. You can, you're a grown-ass human, right? You're a grown-ass person, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You really are. And you can make your own decision about what you think about foreign policy and what side you want to come down on it. And you can even pretend that your opinion on it actually affects it, if that, if that really makes you happy. But you shouldn't be okay with your government with a blank checkbook to anybody under any circumstance. When you start talking about giving away billions of dollars at a time where Americans are suffering and no strings attached, no checks, and any assertion that we should be able to take a look at it and and know what you're doing with it, that just tells you right now you're being lied to because nobody would have a problem with that if it was legitimate. And lastly, I I completely agree with Chris. The Federal Reserve System, I guess we all know this. I've never actually put it that way before, and I think I'm going to start using it. Something from nothing really is the fractional reserve system. And it's why I believe right now that you need to be investing in yourself and in hard assets and in cryptocurrencies, all of them, and specifically Bitcoin. Just my thoughts on that, because I think we are reaching kind of a, a an apogee and tra- trajectory here, um, where we've peaked and you know what happens after you peak you kind of speed up when you come down on the other side when you're getting older as a man it seems like it takes forever to get to where you kind of feel old but then you feel older much quicker than you ever did before as the warranties begin to run out I think that's a good description of the Federal Reserve's economic system and it's five defaults that it's had since it was established with its establishment being the first default, uh, I think we kind of ran the game out. And the big thing about the Federal Reserve and the United States dollar, the monetary system that we're under now, it's uh, it's it, it, you know kind of genesis with the 1913 Act. But then we had Bretton Woods, and then we had all the bullshit we pulled in the 70s. We had the demonetization of coinage with silver in the 60s. All of that together and all those defaults The thing that the dollar's really backed by more than anything else is trust, and I think the trust is gone. It's gone. And anybody that still trusts, well, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. I know it usually doesn't stop me, but it's time to move on. Let's, uh, Let's go on from there. Let's hear about hammock camping from Jessica Mills.
4: Hey, TSPers, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question for Bernie. Bernie is looking for tips and suggestions for hammock camping, and he provided some details saying, There seems to be a surge of hammock usage for camping. Could you provide some pointers for those interested in sling sleeping? Well... First, Bernie, thank you so much for the question, and yes, you're absolutely right. A lot of people have moved from the ground to the trees and have gone from tenting to hammocking, and I honestly do believe that once you get the hang of it, see what I did there, oh, um, it is the most comfortable way to sleep on trail. Now, I've tried both, and overall, I do prefer tents. I, I also do have more experience with tents, um, but I definitely think there are some benefits or pros, if you will, to hammock camping. So first of all, they're great to lounge in at camp and they take pressure off of your joints so you can just relax, kind of kick back, let your feet dangle and that's just kind of a rare experience especially if you're backpacking because typically you're sitting on the ground and leaning against a log or a tree Um, and even if you're car camping and you've got a camping chair, lounging in the hammock in my opinion is just so much more comfortable. Um, also, with a hammock setup, you don't have to stress over having perfectly flat real estate to set your tent up on. You don't have to worry about if the ground is leveled. You just need to make sure you've got trees. And overall, as I mentioned before, I think hammocking is just more comfortable than sleeping on the hard ground. Even for me, I've got uh, an inflatable, fancy backpacking sleeping pad. And I'll wake up at night because I'm a side sleeper and my hip will be sore. So I'll have to flip over to the other side and let that one get sore for a little while, and then just keep turning like a rotisserie chicken or something all night long. Um, So in a hammock, I just uh, you don't have that same pressure on your joints. And a lot of people think in hammocks, well, if you're a side sleeper or you know anything other than a back sleeper, that you you probably can't sleep in a hammock, but they actually have a lot of hammocks nowadays that have this little pocket kind of thing to the side where you can put your feet into it and uh, stretch out in a way that allows you to lie flat so you can sleep on your side if you prefer to. Um, also, with a hammock, you're kind of more at one with nature if you get into that because even with a rain fly or a tarp, Um, you're still seeing the ground around you, or you're still hearing sounds more clearly. Um, You're just not closed off like you are in a tent, for example, where you have that, you know, false sense of security. (laughs) Um, So, some of the the not-so-great things about a hammock, in my opinion, are you're limited to areas with trees. Um, So, you have to either camp or backpack in areas with trees. Or get used to the idea of cowboy camping, um, or you know, doing something where you sleep on the ground and you can set your tarp up, tying it off to bushes or with your trekking poles, etc. But you've got to be more flexible if you're backpacking and you're going to hit an area where it's maybe more scrubby stuff and not something where you could hang a hammock. Um, Also, hammock setups, in my opinion, on average, tend to be a little bit heavier than ultralight tents, for example. So I'm not saying that you can't piece together all the different components of a hammock and really focus on saving weight and that you won't get a setup that's more lightweight than an ultralight tent because you definitely can. But just from my experience, I use the Z-Pax Duplex um, and it's an ultralight tent and most hammock setups are just going to be heavier than that because if it's cool out, you've got your overquilt, your underquilt, your rainfly, your straps, bug netting, etc. And some of those things come in an all-in-one type package, but that's just my experience on average. Keep in mind those might be heavier. But if you're car camping, not a big deal. Uh, Also, I like having room to spread all of my stuff out in my tent. I don't know why I like to move in and like organize everything in my tent. (laughs) Um, And I like having that false sense of security. I like to be able to um, kind of shut everything out for the night and be in my little abode. But that's personal preference. In a hammock, I just am kind of disoriented as to where to store all of my things. And it's not quite as convenient. You know, I might have my pack hanging on my hammock set up and I gotta dig down in there for stuff. And you can spread everything out on a ground cloth under you if you want to, but then you've gotta think about mice coming and chewing on stuff in the night. And so, again, I just like my tent. Uh, also, with hammocking, I feel like there's more of a learning curve, mainly because there are so many different components. When you go to buy a tent online, You buy one thing, it's the tent and maybe a ground cloth and that's it. With the hammock, you can get everything all in one, but there are just so many different components. If you do want to kind of piece it together, um, it's just a lot to think about. And even companies that have everything that you need, you still have to pick out which rain fly you want and which strap system you want suspension system. So. I think it can be a little bit more intimidating, but I'm definitely not discouraging anyone from that. Um, that's just been my personal experience. I've taken to the tents more quickly than hammock setups, but pros and cons to, you know, every piece of gear for sure. So I have a couple of videos where I've shared my hammock setup and my thoughts on hammocking. And again, I'm certainly no pro. I've spent way more time with tents. Um, But the best resources I can give you for hammock camping is first of all, to check out The Ultimate Hang. It's a book available on Amazon and also Online, you can probably get it at theultimatehang.com and they've got a blog and stuff there. Um, but also, there's a guy named Suge on YouTube who is like the pro dude to watch for hammocking. So I'll give Jack his channel link to put in the show notes also. Um, now I know that's not a whole lot in the way of direct tips and tricks for hammocking in my short little segment I have here. But those are great resources to get you going in the right direction. So once again, Bernie, not discouraging you. I think, uh, hammocking is a wonderful thing and I'm still going to try it again in the future. Um, I eventually want to master it, but, but overall I really do prefer, um, tent camping, but I hope that, uh, that you give it a shot and that, um, you get some good information from those resources. All right. Well, if any of the rest of y'all have questions about backpacking or YouTube stuff or anything like that, feel free to shoot those questions over to Jack. Thanks, y'all. We'll see you next time.
1: I'm going to say I, I love me some hammock camping, but I, I, I think I really get why someone who does long-distance uh, backpacking may not completely agree. And you know what Jess said about you know you got to have trees that are suitable for doing it, and uh, a lot of times when you're doing you know hiking, like let's say the uh, the Appalachian Trail being probably the most famous long haul trail in the United States, I can't think of a lot of places where you couldn't find a, a couple suitable trees, uh, whether it's kind of a place where people routinely camp along there or just you know, impromptu anywhere. Most of that I think it it wouldn't be a problem, but there's some of other trails where You might be able to hammock camp one night and and not really have a good place to do it the next. However, it is incredibly comfortable, in my opinion. And I think it's definitely when you're going to somewhere and you're going to... Maybe you're not backpacking. Maybe you're just camping and you know you're going to have trees. I personally find it preferable. And the biggest reason is what she said about the levelness of the ground. I have had to pitch a tent... Where I either could sleep with the blood running to my head or my feet going downhill. And a little bit ain't that big of a deal, but a lot is. And uh, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel natural for me personally to sleep that way. Hammocks, man, I can just pass out in a freaking hammock. Anyway, moving on, let's hear about kidney stones. And are they caused by eating too much meat from Dr. Barry. Hey, Jack and the TSP
5: crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Calvin. Calvin writes, in 2018, I had kidney stones. The doctor said the stones were calcium oxalate, Uh, said that my other labs were all normal, that my also my calcium level was normal, and that's important. Uh, For 24 hours, I should make two liters of urine, and I was making 1,600 mLs. Uh, that's not true, that you need to make two liters of urine a day. Uh, but the doctor said, drink more water, preferably with lemon juice. No research to support that, Calvin. Um, uric acid was high. This is a sign of inflammation in your body, which will increase your risk of making kidney stones, that I really needed to ratchet it back on how much animal protein I eat, Again, Calvin, this is completely unsupported by the research literature. Eating animal protein does not cause you to have kidney stones. This is a medical myth. The doctor also said to drink eight ounces of grapefruit juice each day. This is unnecessary carbohydrates and in no way protects you from forming kidney stones. Calvin goes on to say the doctor wasn't too concerned about eating fewer oxalates, although he did provide a list showing the oxalate content of foods. And told me to eat fewer sesame seeds. Now, don't all you guys find it weird that although Calvin had a calcium oxalate stone, his doctor really wasn't concerned about telling him to eat fewer oxalates. This is the case with all doctors. They, they will very commonly tell you to eat lower calcium or stop taking your calcium supplement, but they never seem to make the connection that if you eat too many oxalates, that could increase your risk of forming kidney stones and it does it by two mechanisms first you have more oxalates which what the calcium oxalate stones are actually made of but secondly oxalates cause inflammation in many people's bodies which increases your risk of kidney stones so the doctor basically told him to drink so much water every day that he was going to the bathroom to piss every 30 minutes and this does indeed decrease your risk of forming kidney stones because kidney stones are not actually stones they're actually crystals and crystals form in a concentrated solution. But it takes more than just concentrated urine to make you ha- form a kidney stone or a kidney crystal. Uh, and so there's much more to the story than that. Uh, drinking the grapefruit juice is worthless. Cutting back on animal protein is stupid. Uh, let's see what else Calvin says here. Uh, Do the foods we eat truly affect the possibility of developing kidney stones? Yes, Calvin, 100%. I actually have a YouTube video that goes into detail about kidney stones and what actually causes them. It is not high-purine foods. It is not animal protein. It is none of those things. It is eating a high-carbohydrate, inflammatory diet that provides too much fructose in your diet, which is the sugar that's found in high fructose corn syrup. It's also found in just regular sugar. It's found in very high amounts in fruit juices, fruit juice smoothies, and in just eating lots of sugar rich fruit. And so if you want to decrease your risk of forming kidney stones, then you want to drastically cut the amount of sugar and fructose in your diet. You definitely want to eliminate all of the the canned soft drinks or sodas or as we call them here in the South, Cokes. You gotta stop that. That's, that's a stupid waste of money, and also increases your risk of forming a calcium oxalate stone. You also wanna really cut down on the high oxalate foods, which are plant foods, and you wanna ramp up your intake of animal-based foods. Uh, if your doctor gave you a purine handout, throw that in the garbage, that has nothing to do with kidney stones. <clears throat> The oxalate handout actually would be helpful because you need to cut down on the amount of oxalates you're eating. So watch my YouTube video and I'm happy to answer any other questions about kidney stones in the future. This is Dr. Barry. Talk to you guys next
1: time. I completely agree with Ken. I will say that there is a point when you've been living the wrong way and you transition to a keto uh, ketovore, carnivore, heavy fat, high meat diet, and you begin to shed fat. Where one of the things you can end up with is a kidney stone. I know that's happened happen to people, and there's all and I've talked about this before, but it just bears mention here. There's all kinds of other shit that can happen to you when you quit eating garbage and start eating the way a human was designed to eat. And I always liken it to. If I take someone that's been addicted to meth or heroin or coke or anything, physical addiction, and I put them in a clinic and I take away their drug, they're not going to be comfortable during the adaptation phase. And so you have somebody addicted to sugar and carbohydrates and you take them away, they're not going to be comfortable. And the other side of it is, when you start burning all that fat, there's a lot of crap that you put in your body when you're putting weight on like that, toxins, et cetera, that are little bits over time, and they get stored up in your fat. And in my personal experience, you can experience a flood of toxins being released from your fat, and it can cause things to happen, uh, in- including things like high uric acid and things like that, that is just something you're going to have to go through. And I, the reason I always point it out for people with keto I don't want someone to try keto, say I felt like dog shit, so I quit doing it because it's not for me. If you, if again, if you're a heroin addict, and I take away your heroin, you're going to feel like dog shit, and it is what we need to do. The solution is not go back to, to taking more heroin. It's let's get through this. So I always want to prepare people for that. In my case, I didn't get kidney stones, but among other things, I got rashes, I got some, some, some pimples that were borderline, tiny boils popped up here and there. But I got freaking gout, and that's directly related to uric acid. When I went through this, I was 47 years old. 47 years old, and I got freaking gout. And it, was, it wasn't it was exactly the way, as far as location on the big toe, that other people explain gout, but it was gout. And it was incredibly painful, and it took about a week to get through it. It's never happened again. Now, your conventional wisdom from a doctor, too much meat, too much protein. Well... Guys, I lost almost a hundred pounds in this. Honestly, probably more. I never even weighed myself at my heaviest. And it is reasonable that you will be uncomfortable when your body's making that kind of a change. And just so be prepared for that. Next up, let's talk about another medical issue: AFib. What is AFib? What do you do about it? And what do you do if you're concerned that at some point you may have to exist kind of off grid with without your common tools for dealing with it.
6: Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones, of the survival website, doomandbloom.net, co-author of the 2022 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, the fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, also designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Chris, who writes, question for Doc Bones, how does a person with a history of AFib Manage symptoms in a grid-down situation and no access to meds. Back in July 2021, I experienced initial onset of AFib, and they had to shock my heart back into a normal rhythm. There's a strong family history of heart issues, including my father also having issues with AFib. I now take Diltiazem and Xarelto daily. In a grid-down situation where I won't have access to these meds, what would you suggest as natural alternatives to replace them? I'm already on a low-carb, mostly meat-based diet, which has helped with weight and other issues. Chris. Chris, let me start by acquainting our audience with what AFib is. AFib stands for atrial fibrillation. It's an irregular heartbeat, also known as an arrhythmia, that can be almost unnoticeable in some, but can lead to blood clots, stroke, heart failure, and other heart-related complications in others. At least 3 million Americans are living with AFib today. Patients describe the symptoms as episodes of skipping beats, banging against the chest wall, palpitations, racing or quivering heart, all sorts of ways. They can experience weakness, shortness of breath, chest pain, nausea, lightheadedness, all sorts of symptoms too. A normal heart contracts and relaxes to a regular beat. In atrial fibrillation, the upper chambers of the heart, the atria, beat irregularly instead of beating in sync to move blood into the lower chambers, also called ventricles. In some cases, the turbulence can lead to the formation of a blood clot. If a clot breaks off, enters the bloodstream, and lodges in an artery leading, let's say, to the brain, a stroke occurs. About 15 to 20% of people who have had strokes have a fib. This clot risk is why people with this condition are often put on blood thinners. Atrial fibrillation could be occasional, can come and go, lasting for a few minutes to hours. Sometimes symptoms occur for as long as a week, and episodes can happen repeatedly. In some cases, it's persistent and long-standing, and indeed, the heart rhythm doesn't go back to normal on its own. If a person has AFib symptoms in this situation, sometimes they treat it with medications. Other times, there are all sorts of different procedures that are performed that may indeed restore a normal heart rhythm. Now, occasionally, some people have AFib as a permanent condition. In this type of AFib the irregular heartbeat can't be restored, and you have to use medications to control the heart rate and to prevent blood clots. Chris, you didn't mention if your doctor knows why you have AFib. Causes of atrial fibrillation can be related to the structure of the heart, but it can also be caused by high blood pressure, heart disease, lung disease, sleep apnea, an overactive thyroid, viral infections, and even the use of certain drugs or overuse of caffeine, alcohol, and tobacco. AFib is also seen more often in older folks, obese people, and in diabetics. And like your case, Chris, those with a family history. Initially, medications are used to treat atrial fibrillation. Medications may include those that control heart rhythm, those that control heart rate, and those that thin the blood. Antiarrhythmia medications help return an AFib episode heart to its normal rhythm, or help it maintain a normal rhythm. Rate control medications, like Diltiazem you take, slows the heartbeat during episodes of AFib. You're also on Xarelto, a next-generation blood thinner. Of these, only the blood thinner can be replaced, poorly if you talk to the drug companies, by things like regular aspirin or off-the-grid the salicin found in the underbark of willow, poplar, and aspen trees. I've written about fish antibiotics, but there's no equivalent for the stuff that you are taking, probably because no fish has ever complained of heart problems. In addition to taking medications, there are a number of procedures that can be done, but these require a functioning hospital, qualified medical professionals, and an existing infrastructure. In addition to taking medicines, however, there are some lifestyle changes that might help you. If your irregular heart rhythm occurs more often with certain activities, you may need to avoid those activities if at all possible. If you smoke, quit. If you drink a lot, slow down. If you drink a lot of coffee, switch to decaf. There are stimulants, by the way, that can worsen AFib that are seen in things like cough and cold medicines. Make sure to ask your doctor what drugs you really can't or shouldn't take with your condition. Other common sense options are, of course, eating a diet that helps you maintain a healthy weight. And another thing that's important is the need to manage stress, as intense stress or anger issues can cause heart rhythm problems. People with AFib are often anxious, depressed, or both. Scientists are still trying to figure out what came first, the AFib leading to anxiety or depression, or vice versa. Some options that may help deal with stress include meditation, yoga, relaxation techniques, of course, regular physical activity, a positive attitude, and support from family and friends. Now I'll really go outside the box and tell you about some supplements that alternative healers suggest for AFib. They include fish oil, taurine, that's T-A-U-R-I-N-E, coenzyme Q10, hawthorn berry, and a Chinese herb called Wengxin Keli, that's W-E-N-X-I-N, then another word, K-E-L-I. A 2012 study claims that the Wexin-Kelly was effective in suppressing a fib. Was effective in suppressing a fib. It now holds the title of the first state-sanctioned traditional Chinese medicine-based antiarrhythmic drug. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, don't forget the Member Support Brigade gets a healthy discount off orders of books, kits, and medical supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Check out our entire line and get your family medically prepared. You'll be glad you did.
1: Next up, let's uh, hear from Tim, the tool man cook, with a, uh, a grab bag on backup power. He gets three
7: answers, well done, Tim, into this response. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another segment for the Expert Council, so let's dive right in. This week we're going to try to do a grab bag of backup power questions. I've got three of them here, so let's see if we can get them all done. This first one comes from Brian. He says, Are you supposed to let anchor battery packs get down to below 25% before we're charging it? Or you can to- or can you top it off as you please? So there's two things that are primary primarily responsible for a lithium battery degrading. Those are charge cycles and temperature. So charge cycles are using the battery, going from 100% to 0% and then charging it back up to 100%. That's one full charge cycle. So if you go down to 50% and charge it full and do that twice, that also counts as one full charge cycle. Most lithium batteries and most of the consumer items out there right now are three to 500 charge cycles. That's it. So if you're just worried about letting it go up or down, really doesn't matter because you're going to basically get three to 500, 100% charges, no matter how you split it up. I mean, is there more to it? Yes, but sim- simplicity's sake, yeah, that's the way it works. Now, temperature extremes can also reduce the lifespan of a battery. So in theory, especially, uh, it's almost better to do more frequent shallower charges with the new lithium ion than to do less frequent deeper charges. In other words, charge it when you need to and don't worry about it, because that really is how it works. When you go those long, deep charges, they tend to heat things up a little bit more, so may end up shortening the lifespan a little bit. But reading all through Anchor's website and everything, yeah, there's no recommendation to let it go completely dead. You're totally fine with these newer battery packs to charge them as needed to keep them topped up. That's what I love about the lithium. Uh, <laughs> and don't use it below freezing weather, or at least let it go completely empty in freezing weather because that can really hurt the battery. Number two uh, from Doug. He says, can you leave your batteries in the DeWalt charger slots? Would they trickle charge and be safe leaving them there when not in use? So the short answer is yes. Long answer, also totally fine. I do it all the time. I have a four-port Rapid charger that sits on my workbench 24-7, 365. I put batteries on there. I leave them for sometimes days, sometimes weeks, maybe a month. I don't know started digging into the DeWalt literature on it, and yeah, there's no problem whatsoever. They they charge until they're full, and then if they sense the battery needs a little bit, they top it back up. Pretty much all the chargers from all the major manufacturers work that way now. So if it's convenient for you and you want to have a nice kind of central area to mount your chargers, yeah, throw them on there, leave them, and they'll just stay topped up totally safe now, no fire issues or anything. Ah, now number three from Robert. He says, I live in South Florida and I have a three and a half ton AC natural gas, uh, AC, a natural gas water heater and a gas stove. Is there any portable generator that can run all this without spending $15,000 on a Generac? Okay. So let's dig in first. Not exactly, no, but most portable generators out there are in that kind of 10 to 12,000 at the max uh, kilowatt range, or sorry, 10 to 12 kilowatt range, or 10 to 12,000 watts. Now, mine, the one I have, the uh, TriFuel Furman, it's a great generator, and it'll run almost anything in your home. You know, maybe not everything at once, but you can hook it up and have your whole house going. But the biggest issue is with those central air units. So if you're looking to save yourself some money, and this is the big issue here, because like you said, a, a full house backup Generac is $15,000. The first thing, the first area I would start with, if you want to be able to run everything, is to turn around and either get an electrician or, or do some, in, uh, some investigating yourself, but find a soft start unit for your AC unit. Because where the biggest draw on wattage is when you're running a whole home set up like that on a portable is typically in those AC units. And that's a pretty big one. And the biggest draw is when they kick in. So these soft start units that you can install on them, I believe they have a capacitor which helps. And if that's the wrong term, I apologize, but they have something inside that helps build up that the needed power without pulling it from the generator and hence uh, you know, basically shutting the power supply off from the generator. So look at a soft start. If you have one of those, then a portable generator might be a much, much better option for you. So I hope that helps, guys. So we got all three of them done. That was great. If you want to know more about what I'm up to lately, guys, I've been busy. Got content coming out all the time. Come by the workshop. Join the Telegram group. That's the best place if you want to chat and carry on with all of us. And yeah, from there, uh, come by the workshop podcast. We got Thursday, Saturday and Sunday evening, 7 p.m. mountain time. The art, uh, we have, um, home maintenance, repairedness, the art of home maintenance when help isn't around the corner. Uh, Saturday night's kind of a catch all and Sunday is an interview with somebody from the homesteading, Prepping, repairedness, kind of community. So, guys, drop by and thank you. If you have any other questions, send them to Jack. He'll send them along to me. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. All right, next up, an expert council member we have not
1: heard from in quite a while Michael Jordan, aka the Bee Whisperer, on what to do if you got bees living in the wall of your house.
8: A mellow jello hello to all of you out there. From me to the we, you can float out to our discord, catch our signal in the parlor and be liking the tweets. You can get our events on Facebook, education on YouTube and updates on Instagram and some of the wise crack replies on TikTok. That's right, this is Michael Jordan, founder of A B Friendly Company in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where we educate people on bees, apiary management, and the making of the meads. And I'm so sorry I haven't been around, but we are upgrading our whole system and going from wood to plastic. Check in on us and see how that awesome turnaround is going. But here's a question from the hive. How do you get honeybee hives out of a wall of my house? Late last year, I saw honeybees going to the foundation window into the wall. This spring, some warm days. I've seen them coming out of the wall again. I'm replacing the old aluminum siding with new siding, so they'll be stripping everything off the outside wall. Can I put up a trap in front where they can come out and I can catch them? I do not want to kill them. Can I drop some plant off or send some oil to help drive them out? This is an old post and beam house. So the walls are open to the attic, and I can get up to the opening. I'm located in northern India, Indiana by Michigan State Line. Thank you, Craig. All right, Craig. I'm going to give you some advice, buddy. Call a pro. (laughs) This is one of the many jobs of a professional beekeeper. There are some companies that are called honeybee rescuers. There are two ways to get them out. One is a little trap and shoot. The other is what we call a sure file or cutout. First, we always ask the question, why? In teaching over 20 years the edge method, we start with asking the adventure, why? Why do we want to remove the bees from the location that they're at? So we know that you're probably trying to do something. You're getting ready to upgrade and the bees are probably a nuisance or you would leave them alone. We all know there's only one way of treatment-free beekeeping, and that's leave the bees the hell alone or treat them with respect. But we need to feed them. We need to lure them. There's all kinds of stuff on capitalized management that they can do. But you need to call a professional bee remover. If you're calling to have bees removed, more than likely they're a problem. Now, you have to take a class on bee cutouts. I've taken two. I teach one. This is a job to remove bees from a location by cutting out the colony and removing the colony to a new location. This is expensive. But is the best way to remove the bees? That There are very very few removers, and there are only like 20 great removers. But there are hundreds that will charge you to get rid of the bees by just killing them. And there are hundreds of reasons why you just don't kill the bees. For one reason, if you kill bees on the wall, it'll smell like rotting meat. Think about 3 to 20 pounds of dead bees. It's almost like a raccoon dying in your wall. So best is to bring in a pro. We do not want to leave the comb in the wall so ants and mice will come back and make fungus grow. And besides that, we probably want to talk to your home insurance company to see if they'll cover some of this damage. So you want to see what it looks like and what a cutout is and what I'm talking about. I want you to YouTube JP the B-Man. JP shows removals all the time. He has millions of subscribers and over 50 million videos making about cutouts. So he's truly the removal guy. And on YouTube, he will show you what I'm talking about, that it's... Setting a trap out and stuff is just hard. And getting somebody that knows what they're doing is so much better. Especially when they can cut out the area, clean it so the bees will not return, and make it so a contractor can come in and rebuild the site beautifully. Take a hint from me. Trapping out bees is hard, and they call it a trap shoot. What you do is you take the metal wire screen, make the cone, you put the big end of the cone against the wall where the bees are at, and a 3-inch opening on the other end. This is about 16 inches long to 18 inches long. The bees will fly down the tube, go out the little opening, and when they come back, it'll be really hard to go all the way to the opening form and go back in because the screen lets all the scent and pheromone come out towards the base where they originally come out of. Setting a hive next to it with lemongrass oil and maybe a few frames, you might be able to trap out or tap out those bees. But as I can tell you, watch JP the Pro. Now, I took a class from Brushy Mountain Bee Farm and one from Jack State's at the University of Wyoming. I've done a lot. I've done some for TV shows. I even did one for the governor. Son of a bitch, never paid, asshat. It's a hot job, and that's for sure. And we charge about $100 an hour for a five-hour minimum with contracting, homeowners insurance. So get a pro that knows what they're doing on a bee removal and locate. If you want to check it out, check out JP. Big shout out for his hard work and everything he does. And I want you to let let you know that there's some people like oh, lawyers and stuff that will try to get after you about some of this. And I want you to kind of uh think about uh if you have it do it, make sure you get somebody that's insured. Just don't get somebody that's going to kill the bees. Get somebody that's actually going to clean out what you got going on. So this is my time. So smash that like button, subscribe, and share it on on a great wisdom you receive. And for events and news that are coming up worldwide that we're doing, check us back on social media and all the channels that we do from our jelly ball and mobile axe throwing and moving into this great new plastic hive. I'm trying to help out where I can and always trying to remind you, help your fellow man because one day he will need help too.
1: So just to reinforce, call a pro, uh, my bee mentor, who helped me a lot when I had bees for a while, who actually got me my first bees, um, does a lot of bee removals. He fell off a roof doing a bee removal and has serious fracture. I mean, saw the x-rays uh, when he posted them. I'm talking pins, you know, holding bone together, many months in painful recovery, et cetera. And this is something he does all the time. He knows what he's doing. Uh, so there's just an injury potential besides the fact that you're jacking around with, you know, 60 to 80,000 angry, venomous, pissed off bees that want to sting you. And you can make mistakes as a beekeeper and really enrage your bees when you open up a Lanstroth hive. Like when you pull a frame, if you don't pull it straight and you kind of roll bees and smash a few, you can cause some real hatred and anger and it's not good when you do it. When you start cutting a wall apart, And you're taking a beehive out of a place where the bees are not set up in a way where it's designed for you to have access. There's a whole new level of rage uh, in in you are doing a thing that, as far as they're concerned, uh, you shouldn't be doing. And if you are not properly equipped and trained, the odds that you're going to do it successfully without severe pain and anguish and misery are pretty low pretty low. So I do not recommend it. Next up, we have a lightning round of investing questions from John Pugliano.
9: Hello, TSP. We got a lightning round of questions. So let's get started. The first one comes from Justin and he's asking a typical question we get about what financial app or site or trading platform would I recommend? Well, Justin, you know, a lot of this is like Ford or Chevy or Mercedes or BMW. It really is a personal preference thing. I personally use Charles Schwab. I opened my first account with them back in 1985. Now, a lot of younger guys, they think that Schwab is for old boomers. And so, you know, they're not interested in that. And I can understand because some of the newer platforms like Robinhood or Betterment or Coinbase, they have more bells and whistles. Some of the newer technology, they allow you to invest in crypto and things that you can't do on stodgy old Charles Schwab. But the advantage to a place like Schwab is that they are very stable, and so in times of turmoil, like we're seeing in the markets right now, you don't see them have the same problems that a Coinbase or a Robinhood may be going through. But whatever platform you decide to use, the important thing is that you use it. Get in, learn how to pull up the charts, and more or less, they're all going to be very similar. And what you have to keep in mind is, if you learn to access that data, then you're going to have more information than Warren Buffett ever had before he made his first billion dollars. So pick a platform or two, try them out, and just get out and use it. Next question is from Jamie, and this is also a common question. Jamie is asking about the I-bonds and the very large inflation-adjusted interest they're currently paying. Jamie, I'm going to give you a quick rundown and then a reference to an old TSP episode where I answered this. I'm not a big fan of i bonds. Primarily because of the restrictions, which include that you have to hold it for at least a year. If you sell before five years, you'll lose the last quarter of interest. And the biggest concern I have is that, yes, they are paying a hefty inflation-adjusted interest rate today. But their base rate is currently set as zero. And so if the Federal Reserve magically claims that they've conquered inflation next year, that interest rate would drop substantially. So for more information check out TSP episode 3003. That was December 16th, 2021. That was an expert counsel episode where I gave a more detailed answer about I-bonds. Next question comes from Thomas. Thomas is in a rather complicated situation with real estate investment. And his question deals with, should he have an LLC or a trust? Thomas, I'm not going to go into your overall question because it's kind of complicated for the audience. My overall impression would be that an LLC would be the best structure for rental property and real estate as opposed to a trust. But having said that, you know, you've talked to a couple of attorneys and that's the right thing to do because you're in Massachusetts. Things there are different than in other places and you're involved in some significant multifamily rental properties. This is some significant capital allocation, and I wouldn't fool around with guessing what may or may not be the right structure or, you know, taking some guy in a podcast word for things. Do what you're doing. Talk to a couple attorneys that are familiar with the procedure and go with what you think is the best legal advice. I wouldn't worry about what it costs to either create the corporate structure or the cost for the attorney fees and just look at it as the cost of doing business, which is exactly what it is. Because I can almost guarantee you that if you make the wrong decision or screw it up, it's going to cost you a whole lot more to fix. Okay, our final question comes from Oscar. And this is pretty much the question that everybody wants to know right now. Are we headed into a stock market economic collapse? He specifically has been hearing a lot of talk from Doug Casey and David Stockman. And he wants to know my opinion. Well, Oscar, I don't know who Doug Casey is, but I'm very familiar with David Stockman. And in all honesty, and I'm not using hyperbole here, David Stockman has been predicting an economic collapse every year for the last 40 years. So I don't know if we're headed to one, but if we do, it won't be because David Stockman predicted it. It's just his business. That's what he peddles, and that's what he always talks about. Now, as far as the big sell-off in the stock market, you know, we started to see a bit of an uptrend about a month into the Ukraine war. And then four weeks ago, everything fell apart. I know it looks really bleak. Personally, I don't think this is a long-term bear market because generally when things like that happen, it's because credit has dried up. And right now, there's plenty of money flow. Corporations and consumers both have cash to spend. And there isn't a credit crunch because banks are continuing to loan money because things like default rates on mortgages or credit card payments or late payments are at really low levels. So for now, in the United States... I don't think we're in crisis mode. Not yet. My estimates are that that would be maybe sometime in 2023. Now, for sure, the rest of the world may be seeing problems. Here in the United States, we're dealing with inflation, but in other parts of the world, they're just having out and out shortages of things like energy and agriculture. And they're also having to up their government spending on things like defensive products and weapon systems. So I think the origins of any type of a long-term bear market, or a major recession are going to start overseas before they hit the U.S., and in a lot of ways, we're very strong in those same areas I just mentioned, agriculture, energy, and weapons systems, and could end up being a windfall. But as far as the big sell-off in the stock market right now, I do think it's a correction because we've got to get past all the excess that's hung over from the pandemic. So there has to be a major price adjustment for assets that were always questionable. And I'm talking about things like meme stocks, you know, game and AMC or way overhyped stay at home stocks like DocuSign, Teladoc and Peloton. And think of all the nonsense in the crypto sector, the douche coins, the no value NFTs. They're currently going through their day of reckoning and it will most likely get worse. But you have to remember, during a correction, good assets and good stocks get dragged down along with bad ones. That's for a lot of reasons, but one reason is is that oftentimes, investments are financed with leverage, meaning people borrow money to make the transaction. And when that transaction goes bad, you get a margin call, and you have to sell your good quality stocks to pay off the margin debt on the bad trades. So you combine that with Just the general fear from the retail investor. And we've got a major correction going on right now. Everything is down and down substantially. That's bonds, silver, gold. Some things are down more than others, but overall, we are seeing a substantial correction. I think this could be an opportunity to take available cash and buy into good quality assets because good quality will appreciate substantially in the future. Well, hey, there's still a couple questions in the hopper, so if I didn't get to you yours, I'll try and do it next week. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano from Investible Wealth and the well Studying Podcast.
1: So I'll add to, mitigate, aggravate, however you want to see it, what John said. with the little thing that I said last week and I'm seeing play out right now, uh, I told you that everything they crash, they buy. And I see some real pain in the market head. And I also think most of the things that go into miserable ranges will be rapidly bought up by the people causing the price to be suppressed. Now, I'm with John. Stay away from the meme stocks, the meme coins, the shit coins, the shit stocks. Um, but on the quality value proposition stuff... I think most of that, actually, there's going to be some good buying opportunities over the next few months, and I think they're intentional, and I think they're actually doing it somewhat sector by sector, but the sector that they're screwing with now is going to drag everything down, and it is fuel. But it's not really fuel, it's trucking. And I had a discussion with somebody on Twitter yesterday about this who said, well, you know, it's not like the stores and the people have a choice. The the price of the fuel, no matter how high it goes, just goes into the price of the goods. Sooner or later, we just have to capitulate to it. And yeah, prices go up, but the stuff will be there. The problem right now, and I've heard some, some rumors today that diesel fuel reserves are coming, the inventories are coming up. And I... I want to be wrong about this. I just don't know where that would come from based on the research I've done. Zero Hedge had an article out today that maybe it's not as bad as it appears. I want to believe them, but I don't. And what I said in this discussion was that BlackRock will buy a trucking company by August. And I think that's what's going on next is if we crush the fuel inventories enough you can say whatever you wanted about just billing more they don't have it's an inelastic demand i get all that but when you have something like a trucking company those trucks burn money and i don't just mean the fuel that goes in them when they're going down the road i mean if that truck is parked and it's not running it burns money one of the businesses i was part of in the past was an outside uh... plant construction installation business we had very expensive machines called directional boring machines and you could only let those machines sit and not run for a given number of days before it began to literally rip the company apart it was a high dollar high risk business because either you were running you were running footage or you're going in the hole semis are not cheap So if you end up squeezing fuel, then not only do we have supply shortages, but there's trucking companies out there with a third or more of their fleet not rolling, not because they can't afford the fuel, because they can't get it. And right now, just with one press release, trucking stocks are getting slaughtered. Target came out yesterday and they said, we have a billion dollar incremental shipping cost that we're adding to our projections. What does that mean? We're going to pay a billion dollars more than we had projected this year in shipping to get the shit to our stores. And it didn't hit Target as hard as it hit the trucking companies because investors understand what this means. They understand what this means. You can say inelastic demand, you know, three times in front of the mirror and hope that the ghost of uh, some economist appears, but in the end, it's the supply gods you need to be summoning and we have a problem there. So, I think there's opportunities coming, but I also think we need to be aware of how how bad this can get. Let's talk about some good news. Got two announcements for you here. The first is I was playing around with domain names. I'm an old domain name buying addict and occasionally I still do it and I wanted to do something with lightning and lightning tips. So I was like, it's crazy, but I'm going to check and see if anybody owns tiplightning.com. No, they don't. Tiplightning.com was unowned until yesterday when I bought it. So I bought tiplightning.com and I own it now. And if you if you go to tiplightning.com, you go to a page on my website, and it tells you some basic stuff about how to use a variety of different light wallets for Lightning, right? So to use how to use Exodus, how to use uh, uh, Breeze, and, and and how to use a uh, wallet of Satoshi, and the goal is maybe you'll tip me. So that's there. But there's some challenges with Lightning because it is still relatively new, and different wallets have different little... Things about them that aren't always the same. So, I thought I could actually empower you. And, and, and here's what I think about Lightning guys: when you realize, hey, I can be on my Exodus wallet and just move a hundred or two hundred bucks in a Lightning, and then I can play with it basically, I move it around for days, and I, you know, I maybe spend a couple bucks if I just move it around randomly for the hell of it from one wallet to the other back because it's so cheap and so fast to move around, and then you get an understanding of the power. That you have and what it's going to mean for the future so i'm going to be building that that page out maybe at some point it will even be its own website um and yes i do want tips lightning because i like money i don't hate money but the other side of it is i want you to actually teach you how to use it and so you won't be afraid of it i realized how many of you've been so afraid for so long to do something as simple as get your damn bitcoin off the exchanges uh, A good friend of mine, who I just spent some time with, I won't name him, um, I just found out is holding all his Bitcoin and Ethereum at Coinbase. And he said, but Jack Spirico said Coinbase is a great place to get Bitcoin. It's just wonderful. And I said, I did say that to get it. I didn't say to keep it there. I've been pretty clear, don't hold on exchanges. You know, I mean, Really? Um but you get your Bitcoin off the exchange and you get it into an Exodus wallet, and I know kind of this next step of playing with some of it in Lightning, but you know, take twenty bucks, take fifty bucks, take a hundred bucks, whatever's a little bit of money for you, move it into Lightning and learn to use these tools. It's not hard. Literally the little write up I did there is if you will put any effort into it in ten minutes. You can be like, oh, lightning's cool. I know how it works. And I don't just want you to tip me. I want you guys to start using it in your businesses. I want you to start doing business with each other with it. I want you to understand how fast, cheap, and private it is. And that it uses the hardest money ever created in Bitcoin. So that's one announcement. Announcement number two. I am going to be on a podcast. Big flipping deal. You're on a podcast five days a week. Nope. I'm going to be on a podcast with one of the expert council members. And it's not going to be this one. Oh, Okay, cool. Like, you know... Uh, Nicole Sauce or something like that No, I love being on with Nicole Sauce or John Pugliano or anything But no, Dr. Barry. no Dr. Ron Paul That's right, they reached out to me This morning, uh, Chris Rossini reached out and said Dan McAdams is going to be on vacation next week And he suggested to Dr. Paul they have me on For one of their days for a segment on you know Modern survivalism or prepping or something like that And Dr. Paul thought it was a great idea so I've had Dr. Paul on my show as the expert counsel uh, you know, uh, group with him and Dan and, and Chris, uh, doing a segment for me every week for a while now. But that all started when I had Dr. Paul on my show. That was a big deal to me, to get to interview one of my heroes. For one of my heroes to get to interview me and get to be on his show... Guys, this is a big deal, and I just wanted to share it with you all as quickly as I couldn't let you know that it was happening. It will be Tuesday next week. I think it's between 10 and 10.30 that I'll be on. Uh, I'll have a post out tomorrow with more details on it. I think they live stream. I'm not sure. But one way or another, you'll be able to hear it, and I am very excited about it. The last thing I wanted, and we'll wrap up for today, is I wanted to talk to you about this quote. I'm just looking at, and this is why I'm doing the Lightning Wallet stuff, what that change is going to be, right? I'm looking at the change that that's going to be a global payments network that's practically free from a, a standpoint compared to what we've paid to move money around up till now that anybody can build on. That part, that second part, I'm guaranteeing you the vast majority of this audience is not comprehending it because if you did, it would be blowing your mind. I can't build on the Visa network. I can't build on the Mastercard network. Build on top of the network. You got to let me you got to let that sink in one more time. Build on top of the network. The ability to make a product or an app or a software or a website that doesn't just have, hey, pay with Mastercard. Anybody can do that with a merchant account. To build technology to work on, think of it that way. What if you had the ability now, you had to some coding skills and what have you and know what the hell you're doing, but to build a product on top of MasterCard's network, on top of the Swift network, to build on top of a network that is a cross-borders, source-agnostic, global instant settlement payments network. If you're like, I don't get it, I'm going to give you our quote here. Stephen Hawking, intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. Our society is going through a change right now, the likes of which has not been seen by any living person. I said 10 years ago, I said this, and I didn't know COVID would play a part in it. Nobody had ever heard the word really before, Okay. But I said back around 2010, 2011, I did a show somewhere in that thing called The The, The Great Period of Flux, right? the Great Shifts. I've, I've talked about this over and over, and I've identified all the way back then the period of time that I was talking about, 2020 to 2030, and I said it won't just be technology, it'll be a complete and total shift in society. That would be like the shifts that occurred between the the, the antebellum through the post-antebellum around the Civil War. 1850 to 1900, that 50 years, a person that was alive in 1850, if they had been magically taken 50 years through time, could not have grasped the change that occurred. People that lived through that period, somebody that was a 20 year old man in 1850 and was a relatively healthy, still out and about 70 year old in 1900, had to have felt like the earth literally shifted under them. Okay, take that shift and put it in 10 years and that's this decade. And I've been saying, and now people are like, well, yeah, I think so. I was saying it in 2011. This is what's happening. So when I bring something to you like the network that is lightning, it's not just buy and hodl Bitcoin so you can be rich, number go up, make me happy. It's can any of you figure out how to capitalize on it or at least be part of it. Because it's one of the good things that are fundamentally shifting society. It's one of the tools we have to fight back. And then old tech, like how to grow a damn garden, is part of how we adapt to this change. Sometimes we adapt to change by we grab onto the new And sometimes we resurrect the skills of our grandfathers. And what Hawking said was intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. So all of this stuff, from the primitive skills to cutting-edge technology, is fundamentally useless to you without your intelligence allowing you to adapt to, harness, and benefit from this change. Yes, we need to be building parallel economies. We also need to be realists and understand that the economy, the global economy, is going to be the global economy. And we need to be using the tools of tomorrow today. I know that sounds like some shit some speechwriter would write for a president, but it ain't wrong. It isn't wrong. And this is the first time the average person can. Let Let me make it blunt with the lightning thing, for instance. I bet you if you rounded up every CFO, that's Chief Financial Officer, working for any company making more than a million dollars a year, and if you're making less than a million dollars a year as a company, I'm talking gross revenue, and you have a CFO, you are wrong. Uh, you're not. You don't have enough revenue moving through the company to have a CFO. Um, but if you got them all, and there'd be, I guarantee more than a million of them. And you, if you asked them to simply explain what is the Lightning Network. Chief financial officer, and we're talking about the most earth-shattering, earth-shifting method of payments built on top of software-based hard money that is Bitcoin. You'd think you'd be, you'd get a large number of them that would at least know what it is, even if they're not excited, even if they don't like it. They would know what it is. I bet you, I bet you, you couldn't fill an average bedroom with them, especially if you said outside of the crypto space. So if we took the CFOs that are working for Binance or Bitrix or whatever and just put them to the side and said, mainstream corporate America, CFO, tell me what Lightning is and how it works. No idea. You got a redneck freaking duck farmer telling you what it is and how it works. You. Like, you might be a CFO. Don't really talk down you. mouth. I don't mean it that way. But a lot of you just the average work-a-day person. You know this. They don't. On that note, I'm looking for someone. Um, I've been talking to my web guy, but, he, and he's a pretty switched on guy when it comes to like setting up web servers and stuff. But when I started looking at really running a Bitcoin node more than just as a novelty, it's a complicated process. And I'm convinced that with running not a Bitcoin node, a lightning node, that The people that are actually going to make a profit with Lightning as far as running nodes are going to have a product or a service that's using their node that creates the flow through. And I understand a lot more now. I spent three hours last night listening to videos in YouTube University, sitting in bed with my headphone in so my earpiece in so that my wife wasn't disturbed. And I really understand a lot more now about the inner workings of the Lightning Network and what funding a node means. I'm not going to go into that here. I'm just going to say it's more complicated than I thought. I was like, i just throw some money at it. Let let somebody set it up for me. No. But I would like to develop, and reading my write-up that's at uh, tiplightning.com, if you're interested in this, would be a good way to go to get an understanding of the problem I'd like to solve because I'm kind of manually walking people around the problem. I'd like to develop a wallet or a web app or a WordPress plugin or something that is designed so that any content creator can take lightning tips, and I don't care if it forces the podcaster to use a specific wallet or app or something, but it makes it as universal on the other side as possible. Here's what I mean. If I want to take Bitcoin, just straight up regular on-chain Bitcoin or any crypto, I just throw a address up there, and you scan it and send it. If you read my write-up, you'll see that it doesn't quite work that way with Lightning because of the invoicing system, and invoices expire. There's a way around it. It has to do with an email-based protocol, um, but it's still not universal. If I could make that work, I'd be interested in it. If you're interested in Uh, Talking to me about that, maybe talking to my buddy Tom, who handles all our technology, who will understand your words better than me. Uh, Let me know. Send me an email, TSPC lightning in the subject line. I'm looking for somebody like app developer or plugin developer or browser extension developer skill set and understands crypto. I can't help you learn this. If you're not kind of already at the gate ready to go with this, I don't know. And I don't know if it'll work anyway. I'm very freaking leery of partnerships but if it sparks you to think I can do that shit and I don't need Jack go do it adapt use your intelligence it is the ability to adapt to change whether you do it with tech whether you do it with investing whether you do it with entrepreneurship whether you do it with a garden whether you do it with homeschooling your kids so that they're ready for the new world to be more adaptable to it no matter how you do it ladies and gentlemen Use your intelligence and understand that it is the most powerful thing you have, the ability to adapt to change. With that, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I won't say a lot about today's item. It's a pump. It's for your aquatic, aquaponics, etc. stuff. It's the ones made by Active Aqua. Uh, I actually think they changed the brand name on it, but it's the exact same pump. Um and it's uh, it's the company that's always sold it. I think they just took the Active Aqua name and now put their own name on it. Um, but I usually pay about 50 bucks for this pump. It's on sale today for 27% off. Uh, I have two pumps I've standard on. I was on the Big Danner pump, the 2,000-gallon-per-hour, uh, and it's bigger, bro, the 3,000-gallon-per-hour if you need that. Uh, and then this is the one I use for all my smaller systems running, ebb and flow beds on a timer, things like that, uh, rack-based hydro. This is the pump. I believe in standardization. And I don't know, man. The Danner was on sale last week. A bunch of y'all picked that up, and it was on stupid cheap. I think somebody messed up because they changed that shit back fast. This one, I think ActiveAuc was actually doing the thing. They they know what they're doing here. But it's a good discount. And they ain't shit on discount right now. A lot of stuff ain't even in stock. So if you have plans to build some aquatic systems in the future or you want a backup for your existing stuff, and you should always have a backup for all your existing stuff, uh, this would be a good time to pick these up. It's not like it's you know marshmallows or burritos or something. It doesn't have a shelf life. Uh, always have backup pumps on your shelf. Or if you're going to build a project, get your shit now while it's on sale and while it's on the shelf. All right. Next up, the other way you can help us out, join the MSB. You can learn more about that at survivalpodcast.com forward slash members. And if you want to tip me lightning, go to tiplightning.com. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.
3: You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out?